0: Bible's there if you would please. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we're continuing our study through 1 Corinthians verse by verse and we're in this chapter 13 which is the great love chapter of the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is considered by many people to be one of the most inspiring beautiful passages in all of literature. Many people consider it to be a great piece of writing but most people really don't even understand what Paul is talking about. Now, for sure, they they can read this, and they know that Paul is talking about love, but it's not love in the sense that most of us think of. This is not romantic love that he's speaking of, and it's not emotional love, and neither is it erotic love that preoccupies the, the minds of so many people today. This is a totally different kind of love, and actually a love that only a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can experience it. And really... Most Christians don't even come to a full realization of the type of love that Paul is speaking of. And the reason that they don't is because this love expressed in its purest form can only be done by one, and that's the God-man, deity in the flesh, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul writes this chapter, and he gives us a a look at the multifacets of love, He he sort of shines love through a prism, and just like a prism will break light down into a beautiful color spectrum, this is what Paul does with his subject. And this is what Paul terms in chapter 12, verse 31, as the most excellent way. And he's speaking to the Corinthians about this because they were very confused about spiritual gifts. They were very immature. To them, Spiritual gifts were to be used in a a selfish way. They were always looking at self-aggrandizement. And so Paul says, I want to show you a better way. I want to show you the best gift of all. And I want to show you how you can use your gifts in the way that God intends. And so Paul stops here in the middle of a discourse where he's rebuking the Corinthians for their use of spiritual gifts. He stops right there and he goes into this wonderful description about love. Now, today and next week, we're going to study this topic. We're going to look at the different facets of love as we consider the subject, love is a many-splendored thing. Now, let's go to the beginning of chapter 13, if you would, please. We're going to start reading with verse number 1. If you'd stand, please, with me. We're going to read down to verse number 7. And uh, these different aspects of love will be our subject for the next two weeks. In verse number 1, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, and of course there that means love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind, Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to hearts through the message this morning. May we get a little better idea of what Paul means by love, and may you show us these different facets of your love and how, as Christians, we're to exemplify that kind of love in our own lives. Bless our people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are 14 statements that Paul makes in these verses about love. I want you to think this morning for just a moment about a perfect diamond that's cut into all of its different facets and then you'll kind of get a picture there of what Paul is talking about when he speaks of love because he's going to look at this from many different angles it'll take two weeks for us to discuss everything that's here in verses four through seven so we're going to look at just a few things as we consider this this morning and as we go through this you'll learn that love has an opposite what, what would most of you think is the opposite of love? Most of us would say hate. I mean, it's either love or hate, one or the other. But the way that the Bible puts this and the way that Paul puts it, hate is not the opposite of love. Rather, selfishness is the opposite of love. When you put others before yourself... That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. Now you may remember two weeks ago I gave you this definition. Love is the sacrificial, joyful desire to put your welfare above mine. And that's the kind of love that Jesus displayed when he was willing to come to this earth, when he left all of the glories of heaven, he left all of that behind, put it aside, and he came to this world to die for our sins. Now the cost of that was greater than any of us can imagine. And yet Jesus came to this world and went through suffering and death. And he did it for our welfare. He put you and he put me above himself. Most of us don't really live that way. We're always thinking of self. And so when we go to the mirror in the morning, we stand in front of the mirror and we sing to ourselves, How Great Thou Art. That's our favorite song. We love each other or love ourselves so much that it's me and mine that we think of all the time and it's all that we care about. What, what Paul does here, though, he challenges these Corinthians to think in a different way. And he says, here is a more excellent way. This is the best way. This is the biblical way. This is the, the godly way. And that's for joy to put your welfare above mine. So what are the characteristics that he gives us of love? We're going to talk about a few of those today. Number one... He tells us that love is patient with people. Verse number 4 begins, Charity suffereth long. I know that most people think that the King James Bible is archaic and, and very difficult to read, but whenever you read this in any other translation, you really don't get the beauty of the language that we have in the King James Bible. Now, by way of explanation, I actually use the NIV to come up with this first point. The NIV says, love is patient. That's how, that's how it states it. Love is patient. Charity suffereth long. I think that's a much more poetic way of putting this. In our trip to Israel, our Bible teacher was one of the senior editors of the New King James Bible. And in one of his lectures, he gave us a primer on Bible versions. And the way that he put this, I really liked it because he said, the King James Version is the gold standard of translations. Now, he talked about also Luther's translation, and he talked about the King James Bible. He said those are the two very best translations there are. And if you don't know anything about Bible translations, I'll just tell you that the underlying text for both the King James Version in the New Testament and the Luther Bible is the Textus Receptus. And this man said, who is one of the senior editors of the King James Translation, New King James Translation, the King James Version is the gold standard of translations. Then he talked about the NIV, and he talked about some other translations, and I'm going to distill down what he said in my own words, but he sort of put it this way. The NIV is a dumbed-down version of the Bible. Now, what he meant was it was written for simplicity. Now, some people may need that kind of simplicity. I think it's far better for us to learn what the King James has to say about it and retain the beauty of the language that we have here. Now, my sermon today is not about the King James Bible. My sermon is about love. So we're considering here, charity suffereth long. What that means is that love is patient. Love doesn't mind being inconvenienced. And it means that love can stand to be taken advantage of. And not just taken advantage of once, but taken advantage of over and over and over again. Now, we notice here that Paul uses a verb form here. He says, charity, suffer it long. As we all know, verbs are are words that are action words. They go into action. And this is what he says about love. It's not a passive thing. Love is an active thing. It goes into action. And the real meaning of the phrase here is of a person who has the ability and the power to avenge himself when he's wronged, but he never does that. He does not retaliate even when he has an opportunity to do so. Now, that's the kind of love that that really, it was totally unknown to the Greeks and the Romans. These people that Paul is writing to, this is a new way of thinking for them. These people do not think this way. Because in the Roman mind, in the Greek mind, the idea is, if you hurt me, I'm going to get you back. And I'm going to take every opportunity, I'm going to bide my time until I have that opportunity, and I'm going to give you back more than you gave me. And if you didn't do that, then that was a sign of weakness. You're an unstable person. If you'd ever let someone do something to you and not retaliate against them. But Jesus' teachings are exactly the opposite. Isn't it Jesus who said that when someone strikes you to turn your other cheek? He said if someone has wronged you, you are to forgive them. And wasn't it Christ who hung on the cross there bleeding and dying, being crucified? And yet he prayed to his heavenly Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love does not retaliate. So love never says, hurt me and I'll hurt you back. The greatest example of that we have is of God. The Bible teaches that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. At this very moment, God is holding back the destruction of this world because there are more of his elect people that God's going to bring to his name. There are more people that are going to come to Christ at any moment. If God wanted to, he could destroy this world for the wickedness. He could do that, but God doesn't do it because the Bible teaches he's patient. God is wronged over and over again. In fact, the world since the time of Adam has been nothing but, but against God, breaking God's commands, going against him, speaking against God, continual disobedience, insult and injury has been the way of man ever since Adam was created. And yet God continues to give blessings. God continues to watch over us. Even the nation Israel. He'd given them so many blessings and yet Israel denied him. And yet I believe the Bible teaches that in the millennial kingdom that Israel will be restored. God is patient. And this is exactly the kind of love that Paul is talking about. God has been so grievously injured by an ungrateful creation. And if God is willing to be forbearing and to be patient with people, then certainly we ought to be. When someone harms us, the idea is not to retaliate, but we're to take the example of God himself. If God will do that, why can't we bear with someone who harms us just one time? As I was preparing this message, I came across a great illustration of this. Abraham Lincoln had a political enemy, by the name of Edwin M. Stanton. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. But Stanton ran against uh, Lincoln in several elections, and he was very brutal on Lincoln and his criticisms. Today, we think about a negative campaigning. Well, back in those days, they really took it to heights because it, it wasn't just negative campaigning over a person's record or, or their lifestyle or something like that. These attacks got very personal, even right down to what people looked like. And one of the things that Edwin M. Stanton used to say about Lincoln, he said, You don't have to go to Africa to see a gorilla. Just go to Springfield, Illinois. And he was talking about Abraham Lincoln. That'd be sort of like today, uh, Barack Hussein Obama saying that you don't have to go to Salem to see a witch. Hillary rides a broom every day. It'd be the same thing. But Lincoln never retaliated. Instead, did you know this, that when he was elected president and he needed to select and uh uh, a secretary of war the person that he chose was edwin m stanton and he was asked why did you do that he's a political enemy And, and lincoln just said he's the best man for the job and so when lincoln died after he was assassinated edwin m stanton came by his body to pay his respects and he says there lies the greatest ruler the greatest ruler of men that the world has ever seen This is what Paul is talking about. Love does not retaliate. It's patient. It's long-suffering. Now, secondly, we see here that love is kind and considerate. Now, this is what he says next. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Now, again, we're talking about love in action here. And love doesn't just bear it when you've been wronged. It seeks the best for the one who's wronged you. And that's really tough for us. And this is uncommon love because this love says, I will be kind to you even though you've done your best to hurt me. And Jesus taught that very same principle as well. He told the people in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And if you really look down into the context of that statement, Jesus didn't just mean here, when they hurt you, be kind to them. He said, even if they take you to the court of law and someone sues you and they take away your coat, you give them all the rest of your clothes as well. Every now and then, you know, you see a, a bumper sticker on somebody's car that says, Practice Random Acts of Kindness. I kind of get amused by that because usually around here, you see that bumper sticker on the worst liberals that, that live around here, and they're tolerant for all kinds of deviant lifestyles, but absolutely intolerant or intolerant about Christianity. They hate that. They're not tolerant about that at all. But they have the bumper sticker, practice random acts of kindness. Paul would not tell us to do that. Paul would tell us to practice intentional acts of kindness. That's the way we're supposed to live. And did you know this? That kindness is actually an infectious thing? You may remember uh, a few years ago there was a movie that came out called Pay It Forward. Anybody ever see that movie? The gist of the movie was that when someone does something kind for you that you repay the person who did that kindness by passing along to someone else. You do someone else a kindness and that repays the person who was kind to you. Well, that movie is not the originator of that idea. It actually goes back a long way. In the 1700s, Benjamin Franklin did this with lending money. He said, "'I do not pretend to give such a sum. "'I only lend it to you. "'When you meet with another honest man in similar distress, "'you must pay me by lending this sum to him, "'enjoining him to discharge the debt by like operation "'when he shall be able and shall meet with another opportunity.'" I hope it may thus go through many hands before it meets with a knave that will stop its progress. This is a trick of mine for doing a deal of good with a little money. Kindness is infectious. When you start to be kind to people, they'll turn around and be kind to others. Did you know that kindness begins in your home? That's the very first place that you begin this. You begin it in your home. I used to have a a friend back when I was in high school and. This friend nicknamed me Hot Dog. You probably didn't know this, but I went through all my high school years and my young years being known as Hot Dog. And uh, my nephew still calls me up today, and the very first thing he says when he gets on the phone, how you doing, Hot Dog? This friend of mine had a lot of money, and I didn't mind asking him. I said, do you tithe on all of that money that you make? I wasn't ashamed to ask him that. And he'd always look at me and say, charity begins at home, Hot Dog. Hot Dog. And what he meant was, no, he didn't tithe on the money. Uh, He left the money all at home. Well, he didn't really understand the meaning of that. Charity begins at home. He didn't actually quote the whole thing. Charity begins at home, and it really means that the focus of your attention ought to be your family first. But the full saying says, charity begins at home, but does not end there. You don't leave it in your home. Kindness is something you do in your home, but then it goes outside of the home. And when you practice kindness and it starts in your home, you'll, you'll be able to do that outside of the home. But I promise you this, if you're the kind of person that's mean all the time inside of your home, you won't be a person that's kind on the outside of your home. Kindness starts with husbands and wives treating another, one another like they should. It, it begins with brothers and sisters in the home being kind to one another. And this is what Paul is saying. Now, number three, we notice that love is not jealous and envious. He says, charity envieth not. Now, jealousy and envy are really two sins that are very tough for us to overcome. Whenever you you see somebody that's doing better than you, jealousy can take over, and you find yourself not only wanting what that person has, but you also want them to lose what they have because you're jealous of them. You know, there's a very pointed story about this in the Old Testament. Our best illustrations, I believe, actually come from the Bible. The Bible is the authority on all of this. And so a good place to go is go right back to the Bible and see what it says. And there's a great story about this in the Old Testament. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. The Bible says that there was no one that was wiser than Solomon. No one but Jesus Christ has ever been wiser than Solomon. Do you know what Solomon's first act of wisdom was? I mean, this was the thing that kind of put him on the map, and, and this was the thing that, that really caused people to begin to come to Solomon. They heard of, his, heard of him, and from, for miles around, hundreds of miles around, people would come to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And the first act of wisdom of Solomon was actually when Solomon solved a case of jealousy, a very extreme case of jealousy. There were two women in his kingdom that lived together. These two ladies both had babies within three days of one another. One night, as they were, both women were sleeping with their babies, one of the women rolled over on her baby and smothered the child so that it died. This woman who had this dead baby then picked the baby up and she went into the room where the other woman was sleeping with her baby and she switched the babies. She put the dead baby with the other woman and took the living baby and brought it back to her own bed. Well, the next woman, next morning, the woman woke up. This other woman woke up, and she found out that the baby was dead. But she discovered this was not her baby at all. So she went to the other woman, and she saw that the other woman had her living child. But that woman said, no, your baby's the one that's dead, and this is my child. So they argued about that and couldn't come to a resolution of the matter. And so they finally took it to King Solomon. Let him decide what will be done. Well, Solomon didn't have the the luxury of DNA testing. He didn't have anybody there to testify that this baby belonged to one or the other. And so he said, well, here's what we'll do. He said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought to him and he said, I want you to take the baby and I want you to divide this baby in half and give half of the baby to each of the women. Now, the real mother was aghast when Solomon suggested that. She said, oh, no don't kill the baby. I'd rather have the baby live. And if I have to live without him, that's all right. Just go ahead and give the baby to the other woman. Now, I suppose that Solomon and his wisdom had separated the women so that they couldn't hear the reaction of the other. So they brought the other woman in, and Solomon gave his proposal what he's about to do. And this woman said, that's a good solution. Divide the baby in half and give half of the baby to one and half to the other. And so what she's saying, if I can't have the child, she can't have him either. If I can't be a mother, she can't be a mother. You see, that was a very extreme case of jealousy. Jealousy is real. Envious is real. If you have something that's better than I, what I really ought to do is rejoice because God gave that to you. I'm thankful that you do well, that God has graced you so bountifully. A great picture of this is also with uh, Jonathan's love for David. Jonathan was King Saul's son, and he knew that David had been appointed, anointed, to be the next king of Israel. And as long as David was alive, David was a threat to Jonathan and his right to the throne. King Saul, Jonathan's father, continually chased David all over Israel, trying to kill him. But all the while that was going on, Jonathan, who was David's friend, helped David. He helped him to escape the hand of his father. Now, Jonathan could have been very jealous. He could have said, now, I'm the king's son. I'm the one who deserves the right to the throne. I'll be the next king. But Jonathan loved David. And what he did, he put David's welfare first. And so he protected David because he knew that God had chosen him. And this is what Paul means. If God blesses you, I am thankful for that. And even if what good happens to you somehow endangers my success and causes me problems, I'm still happy for you. Thank the Lord he's blessed you. Now you try that today in a dog-eat-dog world, people just don't do this today. Who will do it? Only people that have the love of Jesus Christ deep down in their hearts. Natural men do not think this way. And this is what Paul is saying to us. I'm going to help you. I'll help you to get ahead even if it harms me. And that's just another wonderful facet, a diamond facet of the love that Paul's speaking of here. Now, number four, love is not boastful and conceited. He says, charity vauneth not itself, is not puffed up. Now, this facet of love is actually the opposite side of jealousy because jealousy says, I'm envious of what you have But boastfulness says, I want you to be jealous of what I have. And braggarts, ones who act this way, they always want to build themselves up, and often in the process, they will tear you down. And that was exactly the problem that they had in Corinth. They talked about their spiritual gifts, and one person would say, well, I'm more holy than you. I have more things than you. I'm more spiritual than you. And if you were as spiritual as me, you could have all the things that I have. You know, I have to grit my teeth sometimes because I, I see this so much in fundamental circles today. You, you always have these people that are holier than all the other people and, and they flaunt their holiness so that they, they look down on people that just don't live up to their standards. Don't get me wrong, folks. There's nothing wrong with living by a standard. There's nothing wrong with being a holy and righteous person. We ought to do that. But when the, the minute that your holiness becomes a badge that you show off to others... And suddenly you become the church's monitor for holiness and seeing that everybody's living up to the proper standard, you don't understand what holiness is. You don't have holiness. Love does not allow a person to boast. Remember how Paul shut down boasting back in in chapter 4? I mean, there people were were, uh, putting him down. They were judging him according to his speech, constantly judging what he did. And so he appealed to their pride and their vanity and he asked them a very pointed question. The question is 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. He said, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? So he says, who do you think you are? Who who is it that saved you out of all of these evil practices that you've been in? Who is it that turned your life around and made you something different? Did you do that by yourself? And the answer is no, they didn't do it by themselves. God did that for him. And so so Paul says, why do you boast about it then? Why do you boast as if you're the one who did that? And you get the picture of what I'm saying here? What does anybody sitting in this room today have to brag about? I mean, I don't care if you own 3,000 acres in Marin County and the downtown block of Sausalito. If you do, who gave you the ability? Who gave it to you? God gave it to you. So you don't go bragging about that. You, you don't get, get all holy and look down to your long nose at everybody. You're a sinner on your way to hell just like all the rest of us were. And God reached down and saved you. You didn't pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Nobody does. God does it for us. So bragging, that's something that puts you first, puts everybody second, including God. See, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is being selfish you met those kind of people? You know, there's the kind of people that you get into in a conversation with them. And every time you talk to them, it's, it's like, let's talk a little bit more about me and a whole lot less about you. And they don't like to listen to anything that you have to say. They interrupt you. What they have to say is far more important than anything that you have to say. There's a lot of preachers that are like that. Every sermon that they preach, it's all about them and not about God. They're the hero of every story that they tell. You know the exact opposite of that? Who, who's the exact opposite of that? John the Baptist was. John was baptizing and he was getting... When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. All oh, but you hear some of our fundamental preachers today, and they're saying, I must increase and everybody else must decrease. Behold me. Look at me. I'm the guy that gets asked to preach at all the conferences around the country. I must increase and you must decrease. Why do you need Jesus when you have me? Now, maybe they don't say it that way, but it's exactly what they mean. They have no humility. They're braggarts. So you watch out for braggarts because your welfare doesn't matter. They're never going to put your welfare above theirs. Now, number five, love is not rude and crude. And we're in verse number five now. He says, love doth not behave itself unseemly. Now, this is a person that's just plain rude. They don't care about feelings. They they speak their minds, and when they speak their mind, if it tramples all over you, that doesn't matter. I've seen people that pride themselves in being outspoken. Oh, you know, I'm just a person who speaks my mind. And they think it's a virtue to say whatever's on your mind. You ever heard the saying, some things are better left unsaid? Speaking your mind is not always a virtue and not always the best thing to do. I mean, even if you're right... Sometimes it's best not to speak your mind. You've got to bite your tongue sometimes. I think that's something you really have to cultivate. You know, pastors have to do that. I mean, I hear all kinds of problems. People bring all kinds of things to me. And there are times that I'm listening to people in my office that I just have to bite my tongue because I would really love to speak my mind. When they come to me and you're counseling with people and they'll tell you, oh, how pious they are, how loving and compassionate they are, and then in the very next breath, they're tearing somebody down. Somebody did something they didn't like, and I just have to bite my tongue. Pastors spend a lot of time trying to juggle feelings and emotions, trying to get to the best outcome. You know, I tell people all the time, don't think that there are no politics in the church. I, uh, I don't like to preach politics from the pulpit, but that doesn't mean there aren't politics in the church. There's a lot of politicking going on, And uh, I'm not saying that all of it's bad, but you have to deal with a lot of people where there are feelings and emotions that are involved. And sometimes the cold, naked truth, it's just best not to tell people the cold, naked truth because they can't deal with that. And so you work in other ways to to try to uh, to, to appease and, and to get people back together and to be a peacemaker. So you have to try the gentle approach. William Barclay translated this text as love does not behave gracelessly. Love is very gracious towards others. So sometimes what your rudeness and your crudeness can do, it actually turns people off to Christianity. And when you do that, when you act that way, you're not showing this kind of love. This is not love where you consider another's feelings above your own. Now, number six... Love is not selfish and demeaning. Look at the next phrase. Seeketh not her own. And this is the the whole point of the kind of love we've been studying. Love does not put me above you. Do you know there are statistics that actually say that people who take the focus off of themselves and put it on others, they live longer than people that don't? A few years ago, uh, Brian Jefferson gave me a motivational take. I guess he didn't think I was motivated enough, but he gave me a motivational tape. And he said, well, there are a lot of corporate executives that use this. And and on this tape, it emphasized the need for philanthropy. And it said that people who give a part of their income to charities and, and to philanthropic causes, those people live longer than those who keep all the money for themselves. Did you know that's a biblical principle? And it was a motivational tape, but it was dead on in this subject. That's a biblical principle. Selfish people are unhappy people. Selfish people drive themselves crazy, always trying to grab for a dollar more. Now, what God has given us things for, and I believe this with all my heart, God gives us money, he gives us stuff, he gives us our things in order to share them with others. If God blesses you, share it with somebody else. No, I thank the Lord for unselfish people that we have in Berean. I hope everybody here today, I hope that that you consider helping somebody. People in Berean do it for me all the time. Now, poor old David Morrill right here, he does so much for people that he practically kills himself trying to keep up. A couple months ago, we brought a washer, a new washer and dryer, and uh, I told my wife, I said, I think that I'll ask Dave Morrill to come and hook up the dryer for me. Now, this was a gas dryer, and so better to blow him up than me. So, uh, so I think I'll ask David to do that. But my wife said, I don't want you to ask David Morrow. Now, she likes David Morrow, but she said, I don't want you to ask him. She says, David does a lot of things for a lot of people, and he never says no. So maybe you ought not to ask him. You know, I think about David Marle. Here's a man right here who will not receive rewards for preaching 3,000 great sermons but he'll receive rewards because he helps people. He loves people. He's unselfish. There are many people in Bryn that do the same. Some of you will contribute money to our Christian school when we need it. There are people here that you'll help send a child go to camp this summer because they can't afford it. Some of you will give money like we had the special offering for Nick Graves so that he could go to the uh, get some experience on the mission field. This is what Paul's talking about. Love is multifaceted, and it's so much better than being just wrapped up in you. This is what he means. Spock says, live long and prosper. And this is the one of the ways that you do it. Now, I, I don't know how God does this. I just know he does. But when you give it away... When you consider others and you give things away to help other people, somehow in the end, you always get more. God just knows how to work it. Now, number seven. Let's, let's very quickly try to get these last two in. Love is not angry and bitter. Love is not easily provoked, he said. You know there's some things that you need to be angry about? When Jesus came into the temple, he was very angry when he saw people that were buying and selling there. He fashioned a, a, a whip out of some cords and he drove those people out of the temple. Was that wrong for Jesus to be angry? I don't think so. I mean, whenever there's false doctrine, whenever there's slander of the name of God, whenever God is being blasphemed, blasphemed you ought to be angry about that. You, you ought to be angry when the character and the name of God is impugned. Now, that kind of anger, that's all right. I mean, that's because something happened over God's character. It's not something that happened to you personally, but what you're not supposed to be angry about is when someone does something to you and you get fire in your eyes and your judgment becomes clouded and you do your very best to get your revenge. It doesn't do any good for people to talk about love and tell how you love people and what kind of person you are when when you're the type of person that's prone to get set off and get angry over any little bitty thing. You know, husbands and wives need to learn that. There are things that go on in marriages, anger that builds up, and a husband or wife will say something in anger that wounds the other person, and those things can take years to heal, and sometimes they don't even heal at all. Children are abused by unbridled anger. I like what John MacArthur says about this. He says, it does no good to protest, I lose my temper a lot, but it's all over in a few minutes. He says, so is a nuclear bomb. A great deal of damage can be done in a very short time. Temper is always destructive, and even small temper bombs can leave much hurt and damage. Love, he says, is not easily provoked. Love will never let anger get out of hand and harm others. Now finally, in verse number 5, this verse ends with, Love thinketh no evil. And so finally we can say, love is not calculating and vengeful. And this last phrase can actually be translated, love does not make an account. This is actually an accounting term, and what it means is to make a permanent record to be referred to later. I think this is a good place for us to stop, because this is the very same kind of terminology that we find throughout the Bible when the Bible tells us that God does not count our trespasses against us. We're very familiar with this. We preach about this a lot, that when you trust Christ, that what God does, he accredits the righteousness of Christ to your account. So that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is transferred to you. And that's actually what it means to be justified by faith. You get Christ's righteousness, which is the perfect righteousness of God. That makes you acceptable to God. And all of your sins are taken away and those sins are placed upon Jesus. And so that means that you're no longer accountable for the sins that you have committed. Now Paul puts this this way in Romans chapter 4. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He means blessed is that person that God will not charge sin to your account. And the reason that God does that is because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He removes all of your sins. He puts that on the Lord Jesus Christ. He bears it for you and bears the punishment for you. And what the Bible says is God no longer calculates your sins. He doesn't keep a permanent record of what you do wrong. Not when you put your faith in Christ. Then he goes on and he says, your sins are removed as far from you as the east is from the west. And God's love is so great that he never brings up those sins again. You're never going to be reminded of them. That's exactly how Paul says that we are to love one another. When someone wrongs you, you're not vengeful, but what you do is you sock that transgression away and you never bring it up again. Again, husbands and wives, you need to learn this. There are things that have happened in the past that you ought not to bring up again, things that shouldn't be ammunition for your next argument. The kind of love that Paul is talking about is a love that does not keep accounting of the wrongs that have been done. So God is our example. There are no further calculations. And so if God was willing to do that for us when our sins were so great against him, the question is... Why aren't we willing to do it for each other? So we see love is multifaceted. Paul's breaking it all down. And when you understand this, then you really understand love is a many-splendored thing. It has many sides. All the sides of love are equally beautiful. And it all comes back to what Jesus did for us. It's the consummation of Jesus in this multifaceted love of being willing to give himself for us, to put our welfare above his own when he went to the cross and died for our sins. That's the kind of love that Paul is talking about, that every Christian needs to have for every other person in this church. Multifaceted love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to spend together today. Lord, I I pray that you might bless in this time of invitation. Christians would be drawn close to you, and Lord, that we really might understand these different things that Paul says about love. What a great church that we have when we practice what he says here. Then Lord, I pray for that soul who may be here today who may not really understand everything I've talked about because they don't know you as Savior, and no person will ever understand this love or practice this love until they come to know you as their personal Savior. Speak to that heart today, Lord. Open their heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.